Welcome in the Great Khan's Tent. History, Literature and Storytelling In the Great Khan's Tent is now available on YouTube. You can find us using this podcast name. Fear not, listeners, episodes will still be released on this podcast first, and it is only after a delay of a week that I will upload them onto YouTube. You can still find us on all your podcast providers first. Are you interested in getting the book you just published reviewed? Writing some piece of literature and need help getting it out there and promoted? Interested in sharing what piece of literature we should cover next? Well, fret not. In the Great Khan's Tent is now available on Patreon, where your contribution can help in growing this podcast. For as low as $3 a month, a price less than a good, and I mean good, cup of coffee, you can help contribute to the growth of this podcast. Every bit helps, but as always, it is not necessary to do so, but will be appreciated. Find the Patreon link on our website, on our social media accounts, or email us and we can send it to you. Thank you. If you have any suggestions, comments, or complaints, please be sure to email us at all lowercase in the great Hans tent at gmail.com. That is in the great Hans tent at gmail.com. We would love to hear from our listeners. Thank you for listening, and now on with the show. Hello all, Saf Big here. As you listen to my podcast, I would hope that you would make a donation, if possible, to the Palestine Children's Relief Fund or the PCRF, ENERA, the American Near East Refuge Aid, or Medical Aid for Palestinians. In these trying times, it is necessary for everyone to do what they can. Even if it's a little bit, it helps. Thank you. In this episode, we continue with our ongoing series titled Tales from Central Asia by looking at four different tales from four different ethnic groups. The first story that is told is from the Turkmen ethnic group titled A Mountain of Gems. The second story that is told is from the Uzbek ethnic group titled The Clever Brothers. The third story that is told is from the Tajik ethnic group titled The Greedy Kazi. What is interesting about these three stories is that they all bear a resemblance to similar tales that we have encountered or have yet to encounter in the 1001 Nights. Although there is no indication of the provenance of these stories, it can be surmised that they were either inspired by the 1001 Nights and were modified to fit their local storytelling environments, or that these stories were developed in parallel to one another in a somewhat isolated environment. As we encounter similar stories in the 1001 Nights, there will be future special episodes comparing and contrasting them. The last story that is told is from the Altai ethnic group called Boroldoe Mergen and his brave son. This story is similar in its structure to the Bashkir story we encountered, Altan Saka the Golden Knucklebone, as well as the story of Zarin Khan and the Archer, the Kalmek story. The main character in all three of these stories is uniquely different from the environment that he finds himself in 
or the village as in the case of Boroldoy Morgan, the villagers are cowardly and not brave, and it is solely up to him to stand up to the unrighteous ogre Almaeus. In the next episode, we will once again resume our exploration of the 1001 Nights. A Mountain of Gems A Turkmen Fairy Tale The Turkmen people are a Turkic ethnic group which is native to Central Asia. They had previously adopted the name Oghuz, who were a Western Turkic group who spoke the Oghuz Turkish language and formed a tribal confederation in the 8th century CE. Beginning in the 11th century CE and up until the 18th century CE, the Turkmen continued a steady western migration, playing a formative role in many of the geographical areas of the Middle East, Central Asia itself, and South Asia. The largest majority of Turkmen are found in their homeland of Turkmenistan. Large groups of Turkmen are also found in Iran, Afghanistan, Turkey, Uzbekistan, Russia, Tajikistan, Azerbaijan, and Pakistan. Turkmen adopted Islam at a wide-scale level between the 12th and the 14th centuries CE through the efforts of Sufi tariqas like the Yasaviya and the Kubraviya. In a certain village, there once lived an old widow who had one son, Mir Ali by name. The mother and son were very poor. The old woman combed wool and took in washing, and in this way managed to earn enough to feed herself and her son. When Mir Ali grew up, his mother said to him, I haven't the strength to work any more, my son. You must find yourself work of some kind to do, and so earn your keep. Very well, said Mir Ali, and off he went in search of work. He went here, and he went there, but nowhere could he find anything to do. After a time, he came to the house of a certain Bai. Do you need a workman, Bai? Mir Ali asked. I do, the Bai replied, and he hired Mir Ali on the spot. A day passed, and the Bai did not ask his new workman to do anything at all. Another day passed, and the Bai gave him no orders of any kind. A third day passed, and the Bai seemed not so much as to notice him. All this seemed very strange to Mir Ali, who began to wonder why the Bai had hired him. So he went to him and asked, Shall I be getting any work to do, master? Yes, yes, the Bai replied, I am going on a journey tomorrow, and you will come with me. The following day, the Bai ordered Mir Ali to slaughter a bull and to skin it, and, this done, to bring four large sacks and prepare two camels for a journey. The bull's hide and the sacks were put on one of the camels, the Bai mounted the other, and off they started on their way. They got to the front of a distant mountain, and the Bai stopped the camels and ordered Mir Ali to take down the sacks and the bull hide. Mir Ali did so, and the Bai then told him to turn the bull's hide inside out and lie down on it. 
Mir Ali could not understand the reason for this, but he dared not disobey and did as his master told him. The Bai rolled up the hide with Mir Ali inside it into a bundle, strapped it tight, and hid himself behind a rock. By and by, two large birds of prey flew up, seized the hide, which had a fresh smell of meat about it in their beaks, and carried it off with them to the top of a tall mountain. The birds began to peck and claw at the hide, and seeing Mir Ali, were frightened and flew away. Mir Ali got to his feet and began looking about him. The Bai saw him from below and shouted, What are you standing there for? Throw down to me the colored stones that are lying at your feet. Mir Ali looked down at the ground and saw that a great number of precious stones, diamonds and rubies, sapphires and emeralds were strewn all over it. The gems were large and beautiful and they sparkled in the sun. Mir Ali began gathering the gems and throwing them down to the Bai, who picked them up as fast as they fell and filled two of the sacks with them. Mir Ali kept on working until a thought struck him that turned his blood cold. How shall I get down from here, master? he called to the Bai. Throw down more of the stones, the Bai called back. I will tell you how to get down from the mountain afterwards. Mir Ali believed him and went on throwing down the gems. When the sacks were full, the Bai hoisted them on to the camel's back. Ho there, my son, he called with a laugh to Mir Ali. Now you can see what kind of work I give my workmen to do. See how many of them are up there on the mountain. And with these words, the Bai rode away. Mir Ali was left on the mountaintop all alone. He began looking for a way to climb down, but the mountain was very steep, with precipices on all sides, and he could not find one. Men's bones lay about everywhere. They were the bones of those who, like Mir Ali, had been the Bai's workmen. Mir Ali was terrified. Suddenly, there came a rush of wings overhead, and before he could turn around, a huge eagle had pounced upon him. He was about to tear Mir Ali to pieces, but Mir Ali did not lose his presence of mind, and grasping the eagle's legs with both hands, held them in a tight grip. The eagle let out a cry, rose up into the air, and flew round and round, trying to shake off Mir Ali. At last, exhausted, he dropped to the ground well below the mountaintop, and when Mir Ali loosened his hold, flew away. Thus was Mir Ali saved from a terrible death. He reached the foot of the mountain, and going to the marketplace, began looking for work again. Suddenly he saw the Bai, his former master, coming towards him. Do you need a workman, Bai? Mir Ali asked him. Now it did not enter the Bai's head that any workman of his, once he had been left on the mountaintop, could have remained alive. It had never happened before, and not recognizing Mir Ali, he hired him and took him home with him. Soon after, the Bai ordered Mir Ali to slaughter a bull and skin it, and this being done, told him to get ready two camels and bring four sacks. They made their way to the foot of the same mountain, and just as before, the Bai told Mir Ali to lie down on the bull's hide and wrap himself up in it. Show me how it's done. 
for it's not quite clear to me, said Mir Ali. What is there to understand? Here is the way it's done, the Bai replied, and stretched himself out on the hide, which had been turned inside out. Mir Ali at once rolled up the hide with the Bai inside it into a bundle and strapped it tight. What have you done to me, my son? the Bai cried. The same moment two birds of prey flew up, seized the bull's hide with the bai in it, and flew off with it to the mountain top. Once there, they began to tear at it with their beaks and claws, but seeing the bai were frightened and flew away. The bai scrambled to his feet. Come, bai, do not waste time. Throw down the gems to me just as I did to you, Mir Ali called from below. Only then did the bai recognize him and began trembling with fear and rage. How did you get down the mountain? He called to Mir Ali. Throw down more of the gems in one I have enough. I'll tell you how, Mir Ali called back. The bai began to throw down the gems, and Mir Ali picked them up as fast as they fell. When the sacks were full, he hoisted them to the camel's back. Come, bai. Look around you, he called to him. The bones of your workmen are strewn about everywhere. Why do you not ask them how to get down from the mountain? As for me, I am going home. And turning the camels round, Mir Ali set off for his mother's house. The Bai rushed about on the mountain top, shouting threats and pleas, but all in vain, for who was there to hear him? The Clever Brothers, an Uzbek fairy tale. Uzbeks are a Turkic ethnic group which is native to the wider geographical region known as Central Asia and are among the largest Turkic ethnic group. The term Uzbek was largely adopted as an ethnonym under the rule of Uzbek Khan 1282-1341 CE, the Khan of the Golden Horde, and who is credited for not only converting to Islam himself, but also adopting Islam as the state religion. The largest majority of Uzbeks are found in their homeland of Uzbekistan, but significant populations are also found in Afghanistan, Kyrgyzstan, Tajikistan, Kazakhstan, Turkmenistan, Russia, Pakistan, Saudi Arabia, and in Turkey. The majority of Uzbeks are Muslims. There once lived a poor man who had three sons. My children, we have no herds and no gold. We have nothing, he would say to them. Therefore you must try to amass treasures of another kind. You must learn to observe and to understand what goes on around you. Let nothing escape your notice. Instead of large herds, you will have keen minds, and instead of gold, quick wits. With riches such as these, you will be no worse off than those whose pockets are much better lined than yours. A long time passed and a short, and the old man died. The brothers got together, talked things over, and then said, There is nothing for us to do here. Let us travel and see the world. If need be, we can always hire ourselves out as shepherds or farmhands. 
we won't starve no matter where we are. So they got ready and set off on their way. They crossed lonely valleys and climbed tall mountains, and they walked for forty long days. They had now eaten all they had with them, and were tired and footsore, and still the end of the road was not in sight. At last walls and rooftops loomed ahead, a large town lay before them. The brothers were overjoyed and walked faster. The worst things lie behind, and the best ahead of us, said they. They were nearing the town when the eldest brother suddenly stopped, looking at the ground, and said, A large camel passed here a short time ago. They walked on a little way, and the middle brother stopped, and, looking at both sides of the road, said, The camel was blind in one eye. They walked on further still, and the younger brother said, A woman and a little child were riding the camel. True, said the two elder brothers, and the three moved on again. After a time, they were overtaken by a man on a horseback. Aren't you looking for something you have lost, horseman? The eldest of the brothers asked him. The horseman reined in his horse. Yes, I am, he replied. Is it a camel you have lost? The eldest brother asked. Yes, it is. A large camel? Yes. And blind in the left eye? Put in the middle brother? Yes. And was not a woman and a little child riding it? The youngest brother asked. The horseman looked at the brothers suspiciously. Aha! Uh -huh. So it is you that have my camel, he said. Tell me what you have done with it. We have never seen your camel, the brothers replied. How do you know so much about it then? We know how to use our eyes and put two and two together, the brothers replied. Make haste and ride straight ahead and you will find your camel. I will not, said the man. You have my camel and must give it back to me. We told you, we haven't so much as laid eyes on it, the brothers exclaimed, but the man would not listen to them. He pulled out his sword and brandishing it wildly, ordered the brothers to walk ahead of him. In this way he marched them straight to the palace of the Padsha, the ruler of the land. He put the brothers in the charge of guards and himself went straight to the Padsha. I was driving my herds to the mountains, and my wife and little son followed me on a large camel, which is blind in one eye, said he. They dropped behind somehow, missed the road, and lost their way. I went to look for them and overtook three men who were traveling on foot. I am convinced that these men stole my camel, and I greatly fear that they have killed my wife and son. What makes you think so? asked the Padshah when the man had finished speaking. Well, these men told me, without saying a word about it, that the camel was large and blind in one eye, and that a woman and a child were riding it. The Padshah thought this over. If, as you say, you told them nothing, and yet they were able to describe your camel so well, then they must indeed have stolen it, said he. Go bring the thieves here. The owner of the camel went out and presently returned with the three brothers. Answer me, thieves, cried the Padsha in threatening tones. Answer me, what have you done with this man's camel? We are not thieves and have never seen his camel, the brothers replied, said the Padsha. You described his camel to him without his telling you anything about it. How dare you deny you stole it? 
There is nothing surprising about that, O Pacha, the brothers replied. We learnt to observe and to let nothing escape our notice from our earliest years. That is why we could tell what the camel was like without ever having seen it. The Pacha laughed. Is it possible to know so much about something one has never seen? He asked. Yes, it is, the brothers replied. Well, well, we shall see if you are telling the truth. And the Padshah called his vizier and whispered something in his ear. The vizier at once left the palace, but was soon back again with two servants, bearing a barrel with a large chest on it. Putting the barrel where the Padshah could see it, they moved aside. The brothers stood watching them from a distance. They took careful note of the manner in which the chest had been carried and the way it was set down on the floor, and they noticed too that the vizier and the servants had come from the direction of the palace garden. Come, thieves, tell us what is in that chest, the Padshah demanded. We have already told you, O Padshah, that we are not thieves, said the eldest brother. But I can tell you what is in that chest, if you so wish. The chest contains a small round object, a pomegranate, the middle brother put it. Yes, and it is not quite ripe, the youngest brother added. Hearing them, the Pacha ordered the chest to be brought nearer and commanded the servants to open it. What was his surprise when he saw that there was nothing in it but an unripe pomegranate? The Pacha took out the pomegranate and showed it to all who were present. Then turning to the owner of the lost camel, he said, These young men have proved that they are not thieves. Go and look for your camel elsewhere. All who were with the Pacha marveled at the brother's cleverness, but none more than the Pacha himself. He commanded delicacies of all kinds to be brought in and began regaling the brothers. You are blameless and free to go where you will, said he, but first you must tell me how you knew that the man had lost a camel and what the camel looked like, said the eldest brother. The large tracks it left in the dust told me that a very big camel had passed there. When I saw that the man who overtook us on the road kept looking to all sides of him, I knew at once what he was searching for. Well done, said the Padshah. Now which of you told the man that the camel was blind in its left eye? The middle brother rose to his feet. I did, said he. How did you know that the camel was blind in its left eye? Blindness does not leave tracks on the road. I gather it was so because the grass had all been nibbled on the right side of the road, but was untouched on the left side, the middle brother replied. Good for you, said the Padshah, and which of you guessed that a woman and a child were riding the camel? I did, the youngest brother replied. I observed a spot where the camel had got down on its knees, and I saw the mark of a woman's boots on the sand close by. Other smaller tracks told me that the woman had a child with her. Good, you have explained everything to my satisfaction, said the Padshah. But how were you able to tell that the chest contained one unripe pomegranate? That is something I cannot for the life of me understand, said the eldest brother. It was evident from the way the two servants carried the barrel with the chest on it that it was not at all heavy. And as they set the barrel down on the floor, I heard a clattering sound inside the chest as of some round object. 
not very large, rolling from one end of the chest to the other, said the middle brother, and I surmised that since the chest had been brought in from the garden and contained a small round object, the object must be a pomegranate, for there are many pomegranate trees growing by your palace. Well done, said the Padshah, and he turned to the youngest brother. How could you tell that the pomegranate was not ripe, he asked him. Now is the time of year when pomegranates are still green, the youngest brother replied. You can see that for yourself, and he pointed to the window. The Padshah looked out of it and saw that the pomegranates in his garden were indeed green. You may not be rich in money and goods, but you are rich in wisdom, he said to the brothers. The Greedy Kazi, a Tajik fairy tale. The Tajiks are a Persian-speaking Iranian ethnic group which is native to Central Asia. Tajiks are considered as a people whose continuous presence in Central Asia begins in the first millennium BCE and formed the core of the ancient peoples of Khwarezm, Bacteria, and Sogdenia. Therefore, they can be classified as a people who could be considered to be the descendants of Sogdiana and Bactria alongside other Western Iranian peoples and non-Iranian peoples as well. The term Tajik also became a distinction in history between the Turkmen who often formed various empires and the military class and Tajiks who were the urban civil bureaucracy. A large majority of Tajiks are found in Afghanistan, with Tajikistan, their homeland in Central Asia, in a close second. They also have a significant population in Uzbekistan, Russia, Kyrgyzstan, Kazakhstan, China, and Ukraine. The majority of Tajiks are Muslims of various followings. Believe it or not, but there once lived a poor man who worked very, very hard, yet remained just as poor as ever he was. So he decided to leave his native parts and go to a distant city to earn his living. He said goodbye to his family and set off from home. Whether he was long on the way or not, no one knows, but at last he reached the city he was bound for and at once began going from house to house looking for work. And he did anything that came his way, never refusing any kind of work, however hard, setting about it willingly, and always doing everything thoroughly and well. As for the money he earned, he spent only as much as he needed to buy food for himself, and put away the rest in a small bag, saying to himself, I will work a little more, save up more money, and then go back to my family. In this way he toiled unsparingly for seven years, and was able to put aside a whole thousand tanga. And since that, for a poor man, is a large sum of money, he began brooding about it and said to himself, What if though some mischance my money is lost, to carry it on me is folly, for I may lose it. Also a thief might learn about it, and might then kill and rob me. 
nor will it do to hide the money at my lodgings, for someone might see me hiding it, and there being many sly and evil people in the world, I will be deprived of it and return home empty-handed. So his thoughts ran, and he did not know what to do, but at last he decided to give his thousand tanga to the kazi for safekeeping. Everyone says the kazi is as honest as he is pious, he said to himself, so my money will be safe with him. I will take it back from him when I decide to go home. And off he went to see the kazi. The kazi greeted him politely and asked what he wanted. I should like to leave my money with you for safe keeping, O oh, most honorable kazi, the man said. Please keep it for me while I am living and working in this town. The kazi took the bag of money and said gravely, I shall do as you ask with the greatest pleasure. You could not have found a safer place to keep your money. The poor man left and the kazi counted the money and put it away in a large chest. Some time passed and the owner of the money prepared to go back to his family. He came to the kazi and said to him, Give back my money, O honorable kazi, for tomorrow I shall leave this town. The kazi looked at him. What money do you mean? he asked. The thousand tanga that I gave you to keep for me, most honorable kazi. You must be mad, the kazi shouted. When did you ever give me any money? One thousand tanga indeed. What an idea. Why neither you nor any of your kin ever laid eyes on so much as a hundred tanga. Where would you get a whole thousand? The poor man tried to remind the kazi when it was he had brought him the money and what had been said between them. But the kazi would not listen to him. He stamped his feet and called for his servants. This man is a swindler, he shouted. Thrash him soundly and turn him out of my house. The kazi's servants fell on the poor man, beat him up, and threw him out of the house. The poor man stumbled off down the street with tears and lamentations. All my hard work has been in vain. My money is lost, he kept repeating sorrowfully. The kazi has taken it all. Now a woman who happened to be passing by just then overheard the poor man's lamentations and said to him reproachfully, What has happened, my brother? Why are you a grown-up man crying like a child? Said the poor man sadly, Oh, my sister, if only you knew how I have been tricked, you would not reproach me. By working beyond my strength for years and never eating my fill, I succeeded in putting aside a thousand tanga. Now I have lost them. Tell me how it happened, the woman said. The poor man told her the whole story. And people say that the kazi is honest as he is pious, he added bitterly. The woman listened to his story with sympathy. Do not be sad. Not all is lost, said she. Come with me. I will think of something. They went to her house and the woman took a large box that stood there and said to her little son, I am going with this man to see the kazi. Follow us at a distance and try not to be seen by anyone. When we reach the kazi's house, hide yourself and wait until the kazi has handed this man his money. When you see him stretch out his hands, 
to take this box, run into the house and say, Father has come back with his camels and goods. Very well, I will do as you say, said the boy. The woman placed a box on her head, and she and the poor man made their way to the Kazi's house, the woman's son following them at a distance. They came there, and the woman said to the poor man, I will go in first, and you come in after me. She stepped into the house, and the Kazi looked at her and at the large box on her head and said, What brings you here, my sister? said the woman. Perhaps you have heard of me, O most honorable Kazi. I am the wife of Rahim, the rich merchant. My husband has taken his caravan to distant lands, and no one knows when he will return. For many nights now I have been unable to sleep peacefully. Thieves are prowling around our house, and I am sure they plan to rob us. This box contains all the money we have, as well as all our gold and precious stones. It was with difficulty that I carried it here. It is so heavy. I should like to leave it with you for safekeeping. When my husband returns, he will come for it himself. The Kazi lifted the box and his hands shook. There must be at least forty or fifty thousand tanga in money in this box and many precious stones besides. It is so heavy, thought he. I have heard this Rahim is a very rich merchant. And turning to the woman, he said, Very well, my sister, I shall keep your treasures for you. They will be safe with me, you may be sure, and you will get everything back to the last tanga. But the woman took the box from the Kazi's hand. Will I truly get all of it back? said she. Do not doubt it, my sister, the Kazi exclaimed. All the people in the town know me for an honest man. Just as he said this, the poor man, for so it had been agreed between him and the woman, came into the Kazi's house. The Kazi saw him and was overjoyed. Heaven itself has brought this man here, said he to himself. There would be no better opportunity of proving my honesty to this woman. I shall give back to the beggar his thousand tanga and get a box full of money and jewels instead. It will be worth it, ha ha. And the Kazi turned to the woman, saying, I repeat to you, my sister, that there is no better place for you to leave your money than my house. Your box will be far safer here than if you keep it at your own house, and you can have it back any time you want. The Kazi's servants and all who were present in the house nodded their heads as if to say that the Kazi was indeed speaking the truth, and that his every word could be trusted and the Kazi, pretending to only just notice the poor man's presence, exclaimed, Why, here is the man who gave me all his savings, one thousand tanga, to keep. He came to me this morning and asked for his money, but I did not recognize him. I mistook him for a thief and refused to give it back. If someone here knows him and will vouch for him, I will give it to him at once, said the woman. O oh, most honorable Kazi, I have known this poor man for almost two years. He came to this town from afar, and he has been working very hard ever since. He worked for me too for a time. Believe me when I tell you that he has more than earned his money, for never was there a more hard-working man. What? You know this man? the Kazi exclaimed. Then we need not delay. Come here, my brother, and take your thousand tanga. And the Kazi reached into his chest, counted out a thousand tanga, and gave 
them to their owner. Well, my sister, now you have seen for yourself how safe other people's money is with me, and that I can be trusted to return it to its owner, the Kazi said hurriedly. Leave your box here and go home in peace. And he stretched out his hand for the box, but before the woman could hand it to him, her son burst into the house. Mother, mother, he called, come home quickly. Father has come back with his camels and goods and is waiting for you. Oh, well, now that my husband has returned, I no longer fear thieves, said the woman with a smile. He will be able to look after our treasure without the help of the honorable Kazi. And with these words, the woman took her box, placed it on her head, and left the Kazi's house in the company of the poor man. One must never despair, my brother, said she. Remember that there is no knave alive whose scurvy tricks works every time. Go back to your family and live in peace. You have wandered in alien parts long enough. Spend your hard-earned money and enjoy it. And taking leave of one another, they parted. As for the Kazi, now that he was left alone, he flew into a terrible rage. He tugged his beard, stamped his feet, and was so distressed that he did not know what to do with himself. Unhappy man that I am, he said over and over again. What a terrible misfortune. May the merchant Rahim be cursed. Why couldn't he have arrived an hour later? It would all have been over and done with. By then, the box of treasures would have been mine. My riches would have multiplied. My large chest would have been filled to the top. I shall never get over it. Never. And he wept and cried and could not stop. Boroldoi Mergen and his brave son a fairy tale of the Altai. The Altai people, also known as Altaians, are a Turkic ethnic group and a member of the indigenous peoples of Siberia. They mainly live in the Altai Republic, a part of the geographical region known as the Russian-colonized Central Asia, although there are large communities also found in Mongolia, East Turkestan, and in Kazakhstan. Throughout history, they were also known as Teli, Black Tatars, and the Oirats. They were primarily shamanists, but through the influence of Tsarist Russian colonial efforts, some were forcibly converted into the followers of the Russian Orthodox Church, although this trend is on the downward slide as many have returned to either the shamanist roots or have joined a local religion termed Burkhanism. Long, long ago, there lived in the Altai Mountains a man-eating ogre named Almis. Almis had long black whiskers which were thrown over his shoulders like reins and a beard that reached down to his knees. His eyes were bloodshot, his teeth were large and sharp, he had sharp claws instead of nails on his fingers, and his whole body was covered with thick hair. Almis was known for his cruelty. He attacked men and women and spared neither old people nor little children. He would pounce on his victims and eat them up. So strong and cunning was Almes that no one dared to go against him. 
Seeing him, the people ran away and tried to hide. They did not know what else to do. Almis is stronger and more cunning than we, said they. No one can outwit or get the better of him. We must learn to endure and keep silent. And so they endured and kept silent. Now, in one of the villages, there lived a hunter, Boroldoi Mergen, by name, who was as strong as he was brave and wise. Some people might go out hunting and return empty-handed, but not Boroldoi Mergen. He would always come back with a full bag, bringing foxes and sables and ermines and squirrels, and he never came to harm. One day, Almis came down from the mountains to Boroldoi's Mergen's village. The people were terrified and began rushing about, not knowing where to hide. And Almis caught one of the children and went back to his lair. While he was near, the villagers dared not to speak except in whispers. But when he had gone, they began weeping loudly. Whose child will the ogre carry off next? The mothers called out, sobbing, while the children whimpered and the men frowned and were silent. Of them all, Boroldoi Mergen alone was not frightened. It is useless to shed tears or to try to hide, said he. We must kill Almis. Only then will we live without fear. But this did not convince the others. How can we kill him, said they. We are not birds to soar up to the sky, nor are we fish to hide in the water. Almis is sure to get the better of us all. Boroldoi Mergen felt sick at heart. He looked at his son and he said to himself, My son did not come into this world in order that Almus might tear him to pieces with his sharp teeth. Nor was it for that that all other children were born. Almus must be killed. But he did not know how this was to be done. To challenge Almis to battle was out of the question. Almis was strong enough to destroy them all, and the villagers stood in fear of him and would refuse to fight him. To outwit Almis, too, seemed impossible, for he was always on his guard and quick to see if anything was amiss. Boroldoi Mergen gave himself no peace for thinking about how to rid the people of Almis. He thought for a long, long time, and at last he knew what to do. But he told no one what that was. He took his strongest bow and his sharpest arrows and called his son to his side. Is there courage in your heart? he asked him. Yes, there is, the boy replied. And is there pity for the people in your heart? There is. Then come with me. Our way will be long and our errand fearful. But go we must. Is there anything you wish to ask me? But the boy shook his head, and the two of them set from home and made for the mountains, which were known to be the haunt of Almis. They climbed rocky slopes, passed through a dense forest, without so much as a footpath to guide them, and reached an open glade. There was a large tree stump there, and some bushes and trees, but not a beast nor bird was anywhere in sight. Boroldoi Mergen stopped, took off his hunting garb, and hung it on the tree stump to make it look like a man, and his son watched in silence. He made up a fire near the stump, and still the boy watched and said nothing. Said Boroldoi Mergen, sit here by the fire, and no matter what happens, do not run away. I won't. That which you will see will strike terror into you. 
It won't. Well then, sit down and wait. The boy sat down by the fire, and the father took his bow and arrows, and hid himself in the bushes, except for the two of them. There was no one about, and all was quiet and still. A long time passed. Suddenly there came a crackle of branches and a snapping of twigs, and Almus himself stepped out from behind the trees. When he saw the boy sitting by the fire, he gnashed his teeth and rubbed his hands in glee. I was on my way to the village for meat, and here is the meat waiting for me, he roared. Then he glanced at the tree stump, and taking it for a hunter, said with a laugh, Well, hunter, watch me eat up your son. You won't dare to defend him. And with these words he rushed, his beard streaming in the wind, to where the boy was sitting. He tried to seize him, but the boy ran behind the stump. He ran after him, but the boy kept running round and round the stump, and he could not catch him. Now Boroldoy Mergen took aim, he shot an arrow, and it hit Almus in the chest. Almus roared out in pain, and so loud were his cries that the trees bent from the sound of them, and the rocks went crashing down the mountain. And Boroldoy Mergen did not stop, but kept shooting one arrow after another at the ogre. Almus flew into a rage. He rushed at the tree stump and began trying to bite through it, but could not. And pierced by Boroldoy Mergen's arrows crashed to the ground. Boroldoy Mergen went up to him and saw that he was dead. Come, said Boroldoy Mergen to his son, and the two of them set off for their village. They reached it soon enough, and Boroldoy Mergen said to the people, Almus is dead. Now our children will grow up in peace, and their mothers will live without fear. Who killed him? the people asked. I did. Why did you take your son with you, for him to serve as bait for Almus? Was he not in danger of being torn to bits? He was, and without another word, Boroldoy Mergen turned away and went into his house. And from that day, the people of the Altai Mountains were rid of their enemy, Almis, and lived in peace. In the Great Khan's Tent is now available on coffee. If you are interested in supporting this podcast, please click on the link available on our many social media platforms or email us. Why not donate to our coffee to show your appreciation? Every bit helps and we thank you for your continued support. We love that our listeners love listening to us. Welcome to the vocabulary section for this episode. First, let's look at some of the terms used in this episode. Bye. A rich, sometimes titled man, also means landlord or householder. Precipices. A very steep rock face or cliff, especially a tall one. Padshah. Means emperor in Persian. Barrow. Another term for wheelbarrow. Kazi. Judge or magistrate in a Sharia court. Exercises extrajudicial functions such as mediation, guardianship over orphans and minors, and supervision and audition of public works. Tanga means cash or silver or gold coins. Ermines, also known as a stoat, is a mammal native to Eurasia known for its use in the fur trade. Sable. A small omnivorous mammal primarily inhabiting the forest environments throughout Siberia, Russia, and Mongolia. Highly valued item in the fur trade. Glade. 
a small area of grass without trees in a forest. Now let's look at some of the vocabulary used in this episode. Strewn, untidily scattered, amass, gather together or accumulate over a period of time. Keen, having or showing eagerness or enthusiasm. Brandishing, wave or flourish something, especially a weapon, as a threat or in anger or excitement. Regaling, entertain someone or amuse with talk. Nibbled, take small bites out of. Clattering, a continuous sound of rattling as of hard objects falling or striking together. Mischance, bad luck or an unlucky occurrence. Gravely, to a degree that gives cause for alarm or in a serious or solemn manner. Lamentations, the passionate expression of grief or sorrow or weeping. Prowling, move around restlessly and stealthily, especially in search of or as if in search of prey. Knave, a dishonest or unscrupulous man. Scurvy, worthless or contemptible. Alien, belonging to a foreign country or nation. This episode has been written, edited, and produced by Saf Big. Thank you for listening. I hope you have a wonderful day and or night. And may the journeys on which you are set upon be fruitful. Thank you for listening.